Hi, I'm Shinyi Pai, host of the podcast The Blue Suit. In a world full of stuff, what do we choose to hold on to? The Blue Suit is a podcast about commonplace objects and the people who transform them into something remarkable. From an inherited Chinese English dictionary to an old caliphone playing records left behind by Japanese Americans incarcerated during World War II, our podcast showcases modern day artifacts of Asian America and what gets elevated to heirloom status. Find it by searching for The Blue Suit wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to. Whoa! And hey, you're listening to Books on Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin and I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today with another great author interview, um, this time with returning guest Emiko Jean. She was on previously to talk about her book, Tokyo Ever After, which, you know, after release became a New York Times bestseller. It was in the Reese Witherspoon Book Club. I'd like to say, as always, that we like to take a little bit of credit for that. Just a little, no, little sliver. Because, because it was a Reese Witherspoon book club before. I feel like we, our book club is just as. Before publication. I feel like our book club is just as significant as we first okay what whatever <laughs> all right <laughs> but uh, um, we talked to emiko jean about her latest book uh mika in real life and it's a contemporary adult novel it's not ya it's emiko's adult debut and it's about a 35 year old who is trying to discover uh herself who's kind of stuck in a rut and she gave birth uh and gave up her baby for adoption 16 years ago and she gets a phone call one day from her biological daughter and uh in order to seem not like a fuck up she <laughs> decides to make her life a lot better than it seems and mm-hmm. it leads to a lot of shenanigans and a lot of fun episodes i had a lot of fun reading this book and also it was very emotional uh for me to read so i i had the best of both worlds it was funny and uh cathartic yeah it's a fake relationship but with mother-daughter relationships uh, i really like that the book does explore a lot of different types of relationships between biological parents between adoptive parents um and the insecurities and the, the struggles of trying to provide everything your child needs. And like Rira said, it's it's a funny book, but it's also at times, you know, like Rira, you, you mentioned that you, you shed a tear at the end. Yeah, I did. It was like a K-drama moment where it was just like a <laughs> single teardrop. And I was so determined not to cry while I was reading this book because it did hit home <laughs> quite a lot. And I was very surprised. I was like, oh, is this book written for me i don't know <laughs> but anyway here is our conversation with emiko jean enjoy are here with author Emiko Jean, a repeated guest on the show. Um, It's been almost exactly a year since uh, we had you last, and uh, you are now a New York Times bestselling author. Um, How have you been 
Uh, I've been so good. I mean, all things considered. <laughs> um, I know I was trying to think it, it has been a year since we last, uh, how last have spoken and, uh, I've written two books. Um, my kids and my whole family got COVID. Um, I turned 40. I think those are all of like the big highlights from the last 365 days. That's quite yeah. a lot. Two books yeah, is, is in a year. Quite a lot. So, <laughs> not not even to counting be fair, the COVID. Yeah. I know, I know. That set me back a little bit. But to be fair, one of the books was a manuscript that I had completed five years ago. And uh I had put it away in a drawer and then I kind of felt like it was time to uh restart it. And I worked on it this last year and changed quite a bit about it. And so I just I just finished that. Oh, wow. So maybe a book and a half. I could say a book and a half. <laughs> that still seems like a lot for a year. <laughs> yeah. Um, like Mika in real life, uh, when did you start writing it? I know that you say in your author notes that you were writing it in between publishing a book and mm-hmm. writing another book. So I'm curious. Yeah. So I actually went back this morning to look at how I keep a really detailed calendar um, a drafting calendar. And I went back this morning to look when I actually started drafting Mika in real life. And it was in August 2020. So kind of right at the height of the pandemic, like right when everything, right right after everything had shut down. Um, and so Tokyo Ever After had just come out. And I was in the midst, or I was supposed to be starting um, Tokyo Dreaming, which came out uh, this last May. And uh, what inspired you uh, to write Mika in real life during this very busy time? Yeah. I think I use it kind of um, as an escape a little bit. Um, I There are two things going on. So there is this like, you know, big like kind of doomsday event happening in the world. And then um, I was also uh, a new mother. So and I use that term kind of loosely because my kids were two at the time. I feel like I'm always going to be a new mother. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, and so I was kind of, my mind was in was in motherhood and then also was kind of being dragged down by, um, by what was happening in the world. And I wanted to write something, a piece of fiction um, that explored um, mother-child, mother-daughter relationships, but also... Uh, did so in a really joyful way. And so I think it was just kind of my antidote to how heavy everything seemed in the world. Yeah. Um, I guess, what was your inspiration to um, center your story around an adoption story? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the like, you know, for the, as I grow as a writer and I evolved, I have tried to be, I have started to be more intentional about my writing and what I write about. And the driving force behind most of my novels now um, is what it means to be a yellow body in America. And um, it made sense then to take this like transracial adoption piece. So in the book, Mika places her daughter for adoption and Mika is Japanese. And her daughter is adopted to a white family. And so 
that's really Penny is the daughter's name. It's really her catalyst to um, to seek out her biological mom because she wants to know where she comes from um, and, and kind of reconnect with that part of her heritage. And, you know, in some ways it mirrors my own journey. I'm fourth generation Japanese and a lot of my um, a lot of those things were lost after World War Two to me. And so, you know, Penny's, you know, you know, drive to, to seek out her Japanese heritage and to figure out where she comes from, you know, is very similar to my own. I'm curious, did you consult any adoptees and adoptive families? Because I feel like you captured all of the participating parties really well and also very empathetically because, um, you know, like Mika, like she believes when she's giving up um, Penelope for adoption that she's truly doing the best thing. And uh, she believes that sending her to um, middle cl- upper middle class white parents, uh, she will lack for nothing. And it mm-hmm. doesn't really uh, strike her, strike like the idea of like her having this missing hole in her like this hole in her life this longing to have this Japanese American identity in her life it doesn't really come across in in her decision and with Thomas and Caroline the adoptive parents of Penelope um, they also struggle with kind of giving context to uh, her Japanese American heritage as well so um, yeah, did you consult any cross-cultural, uh, transracial adoptees and adoptive families in your research? I did. I read um, I read memoirs um, from transracial adoptees. I also have adoption in my own family, and uh, I um, also consulted with an, ad- an adoption therapist. Um, you know, to talk about kind of what an adoptee looks like, what that journey looks like for them. I think it's interesting that you make the point that like Mika didn't, you know, consider, and she, she makes note of that in the beginning of the book that she did not consider the race of the parents when she placed um, Penny for adoption. And what struck me about that was that I was thinking, you know, in my own motherhood journey, I think a lot about like my own childhood and my parents and things that I didn't have and what I want to give to my children now and I just wondered, it made me think about Mika and, you know, she thought about all the things that she didn't have. And it's very natural, I think, for her not to think of the things that she did have. And, uh, and you know, it's kind of, she wasn't as intentional with that, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, like you mentioned, motherhood is a big theme in this book, parenthood in general, and how no parent actually knows what they're doing and they're all just trying mm-hmm. their best. Yeah. Uh, and I think not only do you have the relationship between Penny and Mika, but you also have the relationship between Mika and her mother, who she mm-hmm. calls by her first name, refers to as her first name. And I think I really did enjoy reading that portrayal of the immigrant mother. Like, we've seen immigrant mothers in a lot of you know Asian American mm-hmm. fiction, and Hiromi is definitely one of the more severe ones. And I also love that you know you capture that. Um, that phenomenon of like really strict parents being super doting on their grandchildren uh, for some reason. It's their Uh, second chance. (laughs) (laughs) I did read, I read a lot of books too on, on motherhood. And uh, there was a, a line in one of the books that talked about how often, 
uh, mothers that struggled with their own children become like the best grandparents. And that rung very true to me, um, you know, seeing these like with my own um, like friendships and stuff and seeing my friends struggle with their mothers, but then seeing their mothers become these very quintessential loving grandparents to their grandchildren. Um, And so that's, you know, that's kind of what I did with Hiromi is that she's very taken by Penny and supportive, you know, with Penny in ways that she couldn't be with Mika. Um, And so I think, you know, in some ways, Hiromi um, was recognizing her mistakes or the things that she didn't do well with Mika and, and did see in Penny like that second chance to do things differently. But of course, she'll never admit it. No, she would never. No, of course not. She would never admit it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think there's very there's something very specific about Asian immigrant mothers and their relationship with their first gen uh, daughters. I definitely saw a lot of parallels with my relationship with my mother. Uh, She was Mm -hmm. also kind of a perfectionist and pretty strict. And we've definitely had some of the fights and conversations (laughs) that uh, Hiromi and uh, Mika have. And, you know, like, I I feel like a lot of non-Asian readers, like, like Hiromi will come across as very like Marvin said, like severe, but mm-hmm. I feel like Asian Asian parents express their love in different ways. Yes. And I know like the typical thing is uh, like Asian parents, they express their love through food and, uh, you know, like working really hard so that they can provide for their children for um, like for college and whatnot so that they have all these resources that you know, they didn't have growing up. Um, But that doesn't, that doesn't make the emotional turmoil that they inflicted Mm -hmm. on you okay. And you said that you talked to an adoption uh, therapist, and I'm just curious as uh, like what they told you about, (laughs) (laughs) about, yeah, that kind of relationship and like the emotional abuse that uh, Asian American, uh, child can go through yeah so um we didn't go too much into like like the cultural divide like that exact experience but one of the things that was brought up when I was consulting with uh this adoption therapist and other therapists too um because the book does delve quite a bit into trauma and uh is that trauma is passed down generationally and it also, there's scientific evidence that it changes the chemical makeup of your body. So it's not just something that happens in your brain. It's something that changes your whole body, right? And so in very many ways, this is a story about intergenerational trauma. So there, you have Hiromi, who's been plucked from Japan and brought to the United States, not by her wish, but by her husband's design because he has to work. And so she's taken out of a place that she loves and her home and she doesn't love the United States. And some of that, that really channels down to to Mika, who's trying to forge this life, right. And be a Japanese American. Um, And it comes across, like you said, as very severe and very emotionally damaging for her. But I think what Hiromi is really doing is she's 
passing along this legacy of trauma to her daughter, right? And um, and so that's part of Mika's journey in the book is kind of unraveling that chain and figuring out, um, you know, what her past is, what those influences were in her life that have made her this way, and then making very intentional decisions to change that. Yeah, I think how Mika tries to be a new parent uh, mm-hmm. to Penny was very endearing, very messy. Yes. Uh, like Marvin said earlier, parents really, first-time parents, they don't know what they're doing. Everyone mm-hmm. is just trying their best. And <laughs> I thought you depicted that really well. And Thomas is such a endearing character, in, in my opinion. He really does try to be a mother and father to Penny. And I thought it was hilarious in one of the scenes, uh, he mentions that he threw a period party. Oh, yeah. For (laughs) Like, where did you get that idea from? So I had read about that uh, many years ago, that there was this like kind of phenomenon of like fathers throwing their daughters period parties. And I think it just stuck. I mean, it just kind of it, it stayed in my brain until this novel. And, um, and you know, what a better way to kind of illustrate this, like, father-daughter relationship and all of these ways that he's, like, desperately trying to support her and understand having a daughter and womanhood and everything like that. And the best, you know, he can do is just kind of to throw her this period party, which ultimately backfires because Penny is embarrassed and runs up to her room. Um, But I I kind of thought of it as like a really kind of sweet moment that was, you know, of course, mortifying for Penny. But later on, she might look back on it with some, you know, sweet remembrance. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, like like a lot of parents, it's well-meaning, but maybe not most the most thought out (laughs) (laughs) kind of action. Um, yeah. and, you know, speaking of not the most thought out kind of action, I really enjoyed that, um, you know, we read a lot of rom-coms on this book club. And so we've seen a lot of fake relationships, but I've never seen a fake until you make a parent child relationship. Um, yeah. where did you come up with the idea? Uh, I really, you know, this goes back to my own journey as, you know, being a mom and like, I did a lot of like Instagram scrolling, um, and a lot of, you know, as a new parent, the internet is kind of your best friend and your worst enemy because you're searching for answers, right, all the time on there. And you see a lot of women, you know, really killing it at, at motherhood. But are they? And <laughs> No, they're not. And that's the thing. That was the question, right? That was kind of where this, this novel uh, started from is like, what does it mean to fake a life? Why do we do it? Um, and who's really the person behind all of those really beautiful pictures and posts and everything like that? And um And, you know, it's alluded to in the book, you know, Mika does some Instagram scrolling and she sees like these really ideal mothers and she thinks about her own mother who is less than ideal. And so she really creates this this huge image in her own mind of what the perfect woman and the perfect mother would look like. Um, And then she tries to create it in real life. Um, And it, you know, ultimately backfires on her. Yeah, I think society is very um, unforgiving towards mothers. You're um, either categorized as a saint or a demon. You do mention that in your book. And Mm -hmm. yeah, like I thought you captured that frustration really well and how, 
you know, like the pressure to be perfect. I, I think you did capture that really well. Um, so I thought it was interesting because to- Tokyo Ever After was about a Japanese-American teen girl who reconnects with her father, um, who happens to be the crown prince of Japan. And M- Mika in real life is also about a reconnection between a parent and child, uh, but is told from a biological mother's POV. How was your experience writing the story in the voice of an adult and a voice of a parent rather than, you know, writing it from a teenager's perspective? Yeah, I it really just allowed me to explore other sides of myself. Um, And I really, really enjoyed writing in the adult perspective. I feel like um, I love young adult and I love coming of age stories. They're I love writing those. Um, but there's really, you know, only so deep you can go. And and with Mika in real life, I wanted to uh, showcase more characters. So you get, even though it's told from primary, you know, from Mika's point of view, you still get like Hiromi's point of view and you still get everybody else's point of views. And you're fairly, you're a little bit more limited when you write young adult books. It's usually just, it's very centric. So when I wrote Tokyo Ever After, it was all Azumi's point of view all the time. <laughs> um, and uh, which is kind of as it should be when you're a teen. I think that's kind of where where you are. But um, with this one, it was it was nice to be able to take on more of a, of a worldview. I like it. I think there's like this subgenre of coming of age for... Those of us, especially those of us who identify as millennials, because we've had such a hard adulthood that there's actually like there's like a second coming of age. right? A lot of people call it like the quarter life crisis. But it's, you Mm -hmm. know, um, because we've got what's like what our second, third recession (laughs) that we're going through right now. Like there's just so many things that we have had to overcome because the world is not what was promised to us as children, (laughs) you know, Um, that we do have to grow up a few times during our adulthood. feel like that's the trajectory of Mika's story too is because you know we, we, when we first see her in the beginning of the story she's kind of a like a hot mess right she's not happy with her life she's kind of just been floating for the yeah. last few years after college and I think that's you know for a lot of us who you know graduate around 2006 2008 like that's kind of was kind of our feeling too as adults right yeah um it's so funny while you were saying that because I guess I never recognized this about myself, but I also floated. I mean, I, that was me. Like I, um, it took me a long time to find myself and to find, you know, to find writing. And, um, you know, I did, I graduated college in 2006 and I, um, it, it took me a good 10 years before I came, you know, to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do with my life. I also think that, you know, coming of age is there's a, it's cyclic, like it, you know, we move in a circle, not in a straight line. And that, uh, well, most people attribute coming of age stories to, you know, young adult work. I think if you really looked closely at adult work, there are also a lot of examples of coming of age stories, um, where we're, we're always kind of, you know, redefining ourselves, trying to figure out who we are, you know, who we are in this year and this decade and this lifetime. Um, yeah, that's true. I feel like after they figure things out in those YA coming base stories, there's still plenty to figure out. Yeah, there's a lot to uncover <laughs> as I find out <laughs> as I age. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite things about your book were the annual letters that Caroline sent 
to Mika updating about Penny's upbringing and her milestones in childhood. Um, And Caroline really, like, even though she is not living in your book because she does pass away from cancer, um, like, you really captured her spirit. And I thought it was also a very clever way uh, to show exposition and Mm -hmm. to show Penny's character. Uh, Where did the ideas of putting in the letters as, like, part of your structure come from? That was something that was there from the very beginning. So uh, when I when I started to draft this novel, the first thing that I drafted was this letter from Mika and the letter from Caroline. Um, and I wanted the novel to be punctuated by these letters. And I also wanted, and I, you know, I couldn't define it at the time. I don't think why it felt so important to me um, to put these in there. But looking back now, I see that I, I really wanted um, Caroline to have a voice, you know, in the novel. I wanted all the moms that are presented in the novel to have a voice. And it was a really, that was the only outlet to do it in was to have these letters. And then it also helped catalog Penny's childhood. So it helped with her character development because in the letters we see how she was as a toddler and then how she was as a kid. Um, and it really lent itself to the narrative and in, in that you know, made it easier, I think, for the reader to, to kind of unpack who Penny was at her core. Yeah, and you didn't include just uh, letters from Caroline, but there were letters from Mika and mm-hmm. uh, Thomas and Penny. They had a letter writing phase where they would express their uh, yeah. feelings. And I thought it was such a healthy way <laughs> to communicate. And we really don't see that in a lot of uh, parent-child relationships. Mm-hmm. That was something that was taken actually from my own personal life. My sister uh, has a has a teenage, nearly teenage daughter, and they d- actually went through like a letter writing phase where they would write notes and slip them under each other's doors. Um, and it was a great way for them to communicate when communicating was very difficult. Um, and I, I knew that I wanted to put that in the novel. And I really liked uh, the letter writing between Penny and um, Thomas also, I think, was a way for them to kind of, in some ways, come back together and uh, lean on each other after, you know, Caroline died. Um, and so I thought that was just a great way for Thomas and Penny to communicate uh, when communication was very difficult. Man, I don't even remember the last time I wrote a letter. Do emails count? I feel like in emails, you kind of, you're trying <laughs> to be more succinct. It's kind of a lost art. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of a lost art. I struggle sometimes even to write emails. It's so strange because I can write like entire novels, but when it comes to like trying to express myself in like two to three sentences, <laughs> yeah. it's very difficult for some reason. Because you don't um, want to write email where it's like, you know, dear so-and-so, it, the, the, the weather has been so nice lately. How have you been? Yeah. It's always like, how are you? Here's what I need. Yeah, <laughs> it's, let's get I mean, the with, yeah. I think one thing with letter writing and emails, it gives people space, right? Mm-hmm. It gives people time to actually say the things that they want, articulate their feelings on paper, but also yeah. it gives time for the reader to digest what has been written. And there's like no interruptions as well. And I think you really nailed uh, 
like I feel like all of the characters they had boundaries and it, it was just communicated so well um and even though there were times where the characters were angry at each other there was also like I'm angry at you right now but it doesn't mean that you know we're going to stop talking forever yeah. and <laughs> that's and that's like opposite to uh, uh, when with Hiromi, like she wields silence like a knife, <laughs> and weapon, I yeah. thought it was it was like a complete contrast. Yeah, I think you know, for better or for worse, Mika really tried to run in the opposite direction of how she was parented. I think she went way too far, but um, she did. So she really wanted that communication piece was so important to her. And you know, back to like the letter writing thing, I think there's two there's a permanence to putting pen to paper. And I think, you know, with, um, you know, with the internet and, you know, Instagram, all the social media and stuff, it seems kind of impermanent, even though we're learning that things live on forever Mm -hmm. on the internet, but it does seem kind of like a flash in the pan. And, And when you sit down to write a letter, it feels to me, it feels like a little bit more important and that it's something that's going to stay with you a long time. And I think it just created this contrast between like, this fake life that Mika was trying to create and this very real piece of, you know, pen to paper art that they produced. Yeah, like Mika's plan to fake an entire life. I was really impressed by how far she went. And I was like, I... I was like, this is just going to end in disaster. (laughs) Um, And just like the lengths that she went and just how much support she had from her friends. That was Mm -hmm. also like really impressive to me. Uh, Can you talk more about the development of Mika's, I guess, support group? Yeah. So I really wanted her to have a friendship group that was supportive yet wary. Like they do warn her several times, like this is not a great idea. This is going to end in a dumpster fire, but I guess I'll hang out with you until it gets too hot. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I, Um, And I wanted her to have that, especially because, you know, she comes from this place where she hasn't had a lot of support from her parents. And so I think it was natural for her to seek out friendships and relationships that were that were very unconditional. Yeah. Um, In a lot of these fake relationship type stories, the climax comes when everything is revealed and that that pacing is tricky. Right. How and when do you do that? And. I was actually really um, surprised to see when the reveal happened in your book because it happened a lot earlier than I thought it would be. Yeah. You know, as you're reading, you know, you kind of feel how many pages are left. I was like, oh, this is happening not when I expected Like on it page to. 130. <laughs> and I was like, we're not yeah. even halfway into the book yet. So like, what's yeah. going to happen? Yeah. yeah. Um, how did you decide to pace that? Yeah. So I do write, uh, I write using a three-act structure. And so... Yeah, what you're saying is like typically you'd have that kind of that that big thing happen, that big event happen um, at the end of Act Two, so the beginning of Act Three. Uh, but when I started to structure the novel and kind of lay out, you know, where all the scenes were going to go and where the pieces were going to fall, I realized that was going to be too late for Penny and Mika. Um, I wasn't going to be able to create a real relationship between them in the final, you know, 100 pages of the novel. I needed to to have things kind of fall apart a little bit sooner. And things, so in this, you know, in this book, things actually fall apart 
twice for Mika when, when, you know, her lies were revealed and then something else happens um, at the end of act two. Uh, But yeah, I really wanted Mika and Penny to forge a real relationship and to see them together and, and what that looked like. So, and also, you know, Mika's on this journey of self-discovery and I don't think she could have completed that journey if, you know, her, if she hadn't been exposed early on in the novel, she needed that. She needed to kind of hit that rock bottom a lot sooner than you would usually have your main protagonist hit rock bottom. And Mika is a former art student and painter. And Mm -hmm. uh, this passion is something that she suppressed for a very long time. And uh, it comes back towards like, towards like, the last third of uh, the book, it is like a journey for her, like you said, Mm -hmm. self-discovery. Has there been a time when you suppressed uh, a passion or hobby of yours and reconnected with it much later on? Yeah, I mean, for sure. It's so funny that you use that word suppressed. I I was asked this question in like a a questionnaire uh, a while back and it took me by surprise uh, because I hadn't really considered... Mika suppressing her art and how it connected to my own personal journey. Um, and I did do that. I, su- I suppressed my writing for a very long time. When I was growing up, I never really saw Asian American authors or Asian American characters. Uh, and I, I realize now that I had always wanted to write, but I never felt like I could write because of that. And so for a long time, I kind of I, I did suppress uh, this desire to to write and to put uh, a pen to page. Um, I remember always having like that ache inside of me, that creative ache inside of me. Um, but I didn't I didn't let it out until much later in my life. Yeah, that seems to be a pretty, unfortunately, a pretty common theme amongst a lot of. Asian American yeah. writers, but also there's a new generation who like are just writing because they've never yeah. had to have that insecurity. Yeah. That's great too. Yeah. And you <laughs> kind of see that confidence in Penny as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, how she's just like a go-getter. And yeah. yeah, like it's it's very it's very refreshing to see the next generation of Asian Americans really yeah. just kind of embracing themselves and and loving themselves because that is, it was really hard for us millennials. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't really growing up for me, at least we didn't really talk about race and identity in my family. It was not polite to, uh, it was frowned upon. And whenever I brought home to my parents, you know, something happened at school and this kid called me this, they would say, just ignore it. Don't make trouble. Just ignore it. And I think now we're seeing this new generation of Asian Americans that aren't going to ignore it, that have not been taught to ignore it. And uh, and they want to be louder. They want their voices to be heard. And I think I think that's that's so wonderful. It's so amazing. All right. So as we uh, wind down on this conversation again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Mm -hmm. What's next? What are you uh, working on now? Can you talk about it or is it like hush hush right now? Um, I am starting to work on a new young adult novel, um, that it hasn't quite taken shape for me yet, but I do want to really kind of explore 
more of like the friendships that I've explored in Tokyo Ever After and Amika in Real Life and really make that kind of a center thematic for this young adult book. Um, and so that's just, that's what I'm starting on now. And I just finished uh, actually an adult thriller. Um, and that's the one that I had put away uh, for, you know, for a few years and have, have just completed. And it features a Japanese American uh, woman detective solving crime you have been genre hopping all I these know. years because like wasn't your debut a fantasy like uh, my debut was actually a thriller and then I did I went to fantasy all within young all under the young adult umbrella uh and now and then I hung out in contemporary for a little while and uh I'm back to to thriller for a little bit it's kind of nice to to uh to change waters so to speak yeah I mean I think it's a credit to your writing skills because changing genres, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining us uh, for this episode. And uh, just in closing, I, I just want to say uh, when I finished the book, like a single drop of tear just like <laughs> rolled down my face. Uh, it was such a cathartic read to me. And I feel like a lot of Asian American readers uh, who have not had that catharsis in their life with their parents and um, just the experiences and struggles that they had. I think this book will give you that catharsis. And I I just want to thank you for um, just not shying away from the ugliness in uh, a lot of Asian immigrant parent and child relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you. I appreciate that. Every time I hear that uh, something that I wrote makes someone cry, <laughs> I take it. I know. As, like, I tried. I tried so hard not to cry, <laughs> and then like I read the last page, and I was like, I can't. <laughs> I take it as uh, the best compliment, and like just that I did my job. So that is, it's deeply appreciated. And that was Emiko Jean. Her latest book, Mika in Real Life, is available at booksellers everywhere on August 2nd, 2022. Um, you can also grab the book on our bookshop.org uh, bookstore, where every purchase you make supports local bookstores and this podcast. So we really appreciate that. Um, you can also find Emiko's other books, Tokyo After After and Tokyo Dreaming, also at booksellers everywhere as well. Um, yeah, that was a fun conversation. I feel like it's always great to have return guests. Um, it makes me feel like we're like building some sort of you know community here, uh, and it's it's fun to see people keep writing and like come out with their second, third, fourth books. Yeah, definitely. All right, a quick reminder that our August 2022 Books and Bubble Book Club pick is Honey and Issues Guide to Fake Dating by Adiba Jagardar. As the title suggests, it is about a fake dating contract between two high school girls one of whom is a popular girl trying to prove to her friends that she is bisexual and the other is an overachiever who agrees to the fake relationship um, in return for learning how to become more popular Uh, we'll be discussing this book at the end of the month and as always if you've already finished the book um, please let us know your thoughts on our goodreads forums Um, we always love to hear what our listeners think and we love to include your feedback in our discussion episodes as well I know I'm super excited for this book. Um, Although we do have a ton of author interviews coming up this month. So I don't know when I'll find time to read it. Um, 
most likely I'll probably start the week before our discussion, but that's just how my brain works. Sometimes it's good to read it just like the day before because <laughs> it's very fresh yeah. in your mind. There have been books for this book club where I did read the book twice. Uh, once, like actually reading it, and then the night before, like skimming it because the problem <laughs> is if you finish the book like really early on in the month, for me, I just have amnesia. I do not have the memory bank to <laughs> to remember character names or big plots. So, really, it's to my benefit to procrastinate and read the book later on. Well, on that note, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. A big, big thank you to M. Jean for coming back. Um, on our show for her second appearance. You can find her latest book, Mika in Real Life, at booksellers everywhere, including the Books and Boba online bookshop. Uh, we'll be back next week for our August 2022 edition of our Books and Boba mid-month book news check-in. But until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you later. Right. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host, Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.